Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Hey there. Well, we're, we're really in the, the heart of our retreat right now, right in the middle here. It's been sweet for, for Matthew and I to get to speak with some of you in the small groups. And uh, I'm looking forward to the Q&A tonight with uh, those of you who are participating uh, part-time to hear how you're doing. So Matthew spoke uh, yesterday about uh, Dharma doors, kind of these various ways that we enter this path and this practice. And uh, I'm going to kind of build on that metaphor tonight. And once we walk through a door, then there's where whatever that door leads to, there's a, you know, a path once we go through a gate or a doorway. And uh, Matthew talked a little bit about falling in love, you know, falling in love with this practice, with the Dharma. And, and as we all know, uh, and as Matthew referred to, you know, there's that work of staying in love, right? Once we, once we pass through the honeymoon period, there's the hard work of the journey of a relationship. And so that's a little bit what I want to talk about tonight is uh, some of the landscapes that we visit on this path once we walk through that door, the, the obstacles and challenges that we may encounter and the many supports and gifts and treasures that we find along the way. It's been such a range of uh, experiences that can come up for us. And I'm imagining that just even in the course of today, you know, maybe you've felt a little bit of calm or peace at some moments and maybe really agitated and unsettled or angry or lost or scared or upset at other moments. And it's uh, on retreat we get to see how many times we cycle through these ups and downs just in the course of an ordinary day, not even doing much. One of the great um, potentials of this practice, really of any contemplative path, is that the difficulties we meet can become fuel for our own awakening and liberation. There's a saying in the Mahayana tradition, no mud, no lotus. So lotus flower uh, grows in uh, swamps where it's very muddy and the muck is thick and dark, but this out of that thick mud comes this beautiful, pristine flower. And so it's, it's from the mucky, stinky, <laughs> sticky parts of our own psyche that something beautiful can be born when we know how to meet those parts, how to embrace them and work with them. It's like they're compost for our own awakening. And there's a very uh, important turning point in each of our practices and in our life really when our perspective shifts from needing to fix that which is hard, trying to get away from it, stop it, make it change, to being willing to include the challenges, to being willing to learn from them. Modern research talks about it as a growth mindset. Right? This capacity to see and understand the challenges and difficulties of our life as the arena for actually honing our better qualities and skills. And I had a very difficult lesson in this early, early on in my practice. I was very fortunate uh, to begin practicing at a relatively young age as a teenager. I was about 19. 
and um, had the privilege of, in my undergraduate studies, studying abroad and going to India. I did a Buddhist studies program in Budgaya, which is the town that now um, grew up around the place of the Buddha's enlightenment, where the Mahabodhi temple is with a descendant of the peepal tree, the ficus tree, where the Buddha is purported to have sat underneath that tree and awakened near the Naranjana River in the state of Bihar outside of the town of Gaya. And uh, there at the Burmese Vihara in uh, Budgaya, I met my first two teachers, one of whose pictures is behind me on my altar here, Anagarika Manindraji. And um, it changed my life forever, uh, meeting them and uh, learning this practice, being introduced to it. And several years later, um, the other teacher who uh, I really fell in love with and wanted to visit and study with more. His name was Godwin Samaratne from Sri Lanka. He passed away quite suddenly. He was younger than Manindra. And um, I realized at that time, I was probably 21 or 22, that if I wanted to see Manindraji again, that I, I would have to go back to India and soon, because he was in his 80s already at that time that I met him. And so I scraped together enough money for a ticket and, um, you know, working at uh, summer camps and outdoor education and made plans to go back to India to basically try to follow him around and study with him. And I was 23. This is three and a half, four years into my practice, very gung-ho, kind of like I'm going to go to India and attain enlightenment, and I'm not coming back until I do. This somewhat naive young man, warrior spirit, and I got in way over my head. I sat uh, three Goenka retreats in a row, and those of you who have done the 10-day Goenka Vipassana courses, you know how intensive they are. So Manindraji told me, you know, uh, I can't teach you. You're too, you're too basic, basically, he said. He said, you want to learn PhD, but you don't know ABC. So he said, go to Goenka, and, and he'll, he'll teach you the basics, and then, we can, then maybe I can teach you some. Uh, I still got to spend a lot of time with him and ask him questions, which was a, a real gift. I, I stayed with him for three months, kind of following him around and being his attendant. It was a very sweet time in my life. And yet I did these retreats and um, it brought up so much repressed psychological material that I couldn't handle it. Um, and I was, I was really uh, suffering a lot. Um, and I didn't have enough support in the context there to handle the emotions and the feelings and the memories that were coming up. And so after, you know, three months and struggling through these retreats and kind of being on the, on the edge of a, of a breakdown emotionally, I went to Menindraji and I was just crying and said, you know, I don't, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can stay. It's too much. It's too hard. And I still remember very, very clearly that night and his response because it threw me for a loop. I was sitting across from him in this little kuti in, um, outside of, uh, in Igatpuri, which is outside of Mumbai. And sitting across from him and crying and telling him how scared and upset and lost and overwhelmed I was. And he looked at me and his eyes kind of gleaming. And he said, when you tell me how much you're suffering, all that's happening, I am so happy for you. <laughs> you must enjoy your suffering. You're making progress on the path. And you know, like in the cartoons, how the characters go like, I, I, like their head spins around. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm on the edge of a nervous breakdown and you're telling me this is progress? This is a good thing? And he had so much faith, so much confidence in the unfolding, the natural unfolding of awakening. He could see what I couldn't see. 
he could see that what was happening was I was starting to get to know my heart. You know, I was starting to encounter something that was real, that I had been holding on to for so long that I hadn't had the space to actually feel or acknowledge. And he knew that it was hard. He wasn't making light of my suffering and he wasn't being a masochist. He wasn't saying, I'm so glad you're suffering. May you suffer more. He was saying, I'm glad you're suffering consciously because this will lead to the end of your suffering. You're finally dealing with it. You're finally meeting it. And he said, you came all the way here to India and you thought I'm coming here for peace, for love, I don't want this, I don't want suffering, but you haven't learned where peace comes from. It doesn't come from imagining peace and chasing after beauty, it comes from learning to be with the way things are. So what happens when we struggle? when we encounter suffering, when we meet the difficulties, do we turn away? Do we blame ourselves? Do we blame the practice? Do we blame the teachers? Do we blame the online retreat, COVID? You know, or are we able to step back and say, ah, there's something to learn here. This is my heart unfolding, showing me something that perhaps I haven't seen or felt or known before. So on this path, there are all kinds of obstacles that we encounter. And yet, if we know how to meet them, they turn into the path. The obstacles themselves become the path. So there, there were five, there are five common challenges that we all face on this path that the Buddha talked about. And uh, I wanted to name these and just say a little bit about each of them briefly, because chances are you are encountering these in your practice. And it's helpful to recognize, oh yeah, that's what that is. And these are universal, that we all encounter these obstacles on this journey and that we can learn to work with them, that they don't have to stop us. In fact, the word in Pali for them literally translates to like a heavy curtain because they obscure our ability to see and they have the possibility of hindering our practice. So there are five known as the five hindrances. The first two are craving and aversion, reaching out for something and pushing something away, two opposite energies, wanting, holding on, and pushing away. The next are sloth and torpor and restlessness, so not enough energy in the mind and body or too much energy. So again, this, these opposites. And then the fifth is doubt, not being able to settle. So just consider, just step back for a moment and think, you know, look back over the course of the day, the last two days. Noticed any craving? Have you noticed the mind fantasizing, thinking about wanting something, reaching for another cookie? waiting for the retreat to be over, that's craving. It's this reflexive need for something, anything, to fill us up, to take our mind away from whatever's happening that we don't like, to entertain us, to feel pleasure, to feel good. Just take the pain away, just make me feel good, just for a moment. It's not conscious. It's, it's habitual, it's this deeply rooted hunger. The word in Pali is tanha, which literally means thirst. And the Buddha talked about it like a bucket with a hole in it, no matter how much you put in, it just runs out the other side. And we see the implications of this, not just in our own life, but in society, in an economy that's based upon consumption, how it ravages and destroys communities, cultures, the very life support systems of the planet, this hunger, this thirst for more, for pleasure, for resources, for power. The Buddha talked about it like a pond filled with colorful dyes that entrances us. We get entranced with the mirage of something appealing. The Tibetans say, craving puts feathers 
on the object of our desire. It makes it sparkle and glitter, like, oh, it's going to be so good when I get it. You know that feeling? The peak of pleasure is actually in the anticipation before you get it, right when you know it's going to come. And then it starts to fade, disappears, and then we need another hit. So craving is the heart that's hungry, that isn't in touch with its own fullness or contentment. And as we, as we come to know craving, as we come to experience and see it more clearly with awareness, we recognize that we don't need to act on it. It can, the, the, the tension of wanting something is so unpleasant that we try to satisfy it to let that tension go away. But through practice, we realize that it's actually impermanent. It will cease on its own if we just hold the space and bear witness to it. That that wanting can arise, be felt and known, and pass. That hunger can never be fulfilled, but it can be released. So with each of these hindrances, the task is first to recognize them, to become aware, to be mindful of them, and say, ah, oh, that's craving. That constant yearning, planning, wanting something, going for the next thing. It's a kind of craving. Whether it's to get something, to have something, to become someone, these different permutations of the same force. So we recognize it, come into relationship with it, feel it, know it, come to understand it, how it arises, see when it changes, how it ceases. So the next of these is aversion which is the opposite energy, pushing away, not wanting something, rejecting, rejecting experience. Sometimes it shows up as anger, blame, other times as fear, recoiling. Same energy, different polarities. Judgment, judging other people, fault-finding, judging ourselves. This, this aversion, this not liking poisons the mind. It's a heart that's gone sour, that's like prickly. You know, that feeling of something itchy, everything's wrong. Why did she do it that way? What's wrong with them? Don't they know better? Why did they put that in that place? What's wrong with me? It just kind of feeds on itself. The Buddha described this as a, a pond of water that's boiling roiling and boiling. And with each of these analogies, you can't see, you can't see in to what's happening because of the dyes of craving or the, the roiling, boiling of aversion. The next is about, the next set is about our energy system. So the first set is about this reaching out or pulling away, wanting and not wanting. The next is about energy, not enough energy, not enough energy in the body is called torpor, sleepy, heavy. No energy, can't do anything. Sometimes it's just that we're overtired. And then there's a lack of energy in the heart, in the mind, a lack of will. We're not willing to be here to be present. This is called sloth. It's a lack of mental and emotional energy. So we see this in our practice, whether it's falling asleep or just spacing out. Sometimes we talk about sinking mind. You start to feel a little bit calm. Things get still in the sitting and then you go down. <laughs> and then you're kind of in this hypnagogic state with sort of dreams coming and going. You're sort of kind of mindful, but also kind of dreaming, but not quite asleep. It was important, again, to recognize as I'm talking about these, that these are not the enemy. When not seen, these become obstacles, but when seen and understood, they become a source of insight and liberation. You start to recognize what's happening, how the mind and body function start to understand how to meet these different energies in our system and work with them. So the Buddha compared sloth and torpor to a pond covered with algae and slime. It's thick and overgrown, can't move. When there's too much energy, we get restless. 
can't sit still. The mind is fragmented, jumping around, feel like I'm going to jump out of my skin. When's the bell going to ring? This is the heart that's lost presence, that's lost ease. It's not settled and it's agitated. This is sometimes just the result of the pace of our society, that everything is so fragmented and distracted, like our mind is pulled in a hundred directions every minute in our life through all the demands and notifications and things happening. As the, now the pond is kind of rippled and stirred by the wind. The surface is all disturbed. So not too much energy. So again, with each of these energy imbalances, the first thing is just to recognize it. Oh, this is sloth and torpor, not enough energy. Is it physical? Is it mental? How do I bring the energy up? Sit up straighter, take a deeper breath, remember my motivation. Restless, too much energy, going to jump out of my skin. Widen, back up, give yourself a lot of space. Notice the out-breath, that feeling of settling. Can I just ride this wave out? Let the energy kind of unfold. The last of these is doubt. Specifically, the translation is, is skeptical doubt. It's not doubt in the sense of, hmm, I want to know what's true. That's a healthy kind of doubt. That's a healthy skepticism. The hindrance of doubt is a mind that can't settle because it's always mistrustful and questioning, kind of flipping from one side to another. It can't commit. It doesn't trust anything, even itself. Should I do it this way or should I do it that way? Well, should I be with the breath or maybe I should be with sound? I should probably start with sound. No, no, sound's not working. I should go back to the breath. Should I do Vipassana? Maybe I should go on a Tibetan retreat. The Tibetans really see it kind of just keeps going and going and going. The heart can't settle. It doesn't have confidence or trust. The Buddha talked about this like a pond that's stirred up and muddy, turbid, it's in the dark, you can't see anything. Doubt comes, it said, doubt comes masquerading as wisdom. It sounds so reasonable, those thoughts of doubt. We're sitting and I think I should probably go have some chocolate. If I have some, that's craving actually. <laughs> if I have some chocolate, then I'll be more relaxed. Maybe I should go take a shower. That'll refresh me. Probably go take a shower. Should I sit or should I shower? Mind can't choose. It's going back and forth. So with each of these, we want to learn to recognize them, to see them clearly. It's like, it's like having in your back pocket just these five. Craving or aversion, reaching or pulling away, energy high or low, doubt, can't settle, not sure. Check and see when you're struggling in your practice is one of these five present. Sometimes they're there at the same time. You get like more than one coming. Learn to recognize them clearly, to just see them as they are, and then to start to study them. It's okay, it's not a problem. It's just a temporary force, it's just a mind state. Can I make space for this? What can I learn from this? We start to understand what feeds them the kind of thought patterns or responses that get them riled up and how they start to settle, how they cease. By looking carefully at our own experience, not by reading a book, not by you know referring to something someone else said, but by looking closely at your own experience and saying, ah, oh, when I keep thinking in that way, I get more agitated. Oh, if I feel my hands and just slow, just breathe, it starts to settle. You need to find what works for you. And learn to apply different antidotes for different energies. So uh, one kind of mode of practice, one, one aspect of walking the path, once we enter the Dharma door, staying on the path, is learning to work with these difficulties. And these are just the five most common ones. But being with that which is challenging requires some resources, right? If you go out on a journey and you're wearing a cotton t-shirt and shorts and you don't have any water, you might not be prepared for the elements. 
could be really hot. You might need some water and a sun hat. It could get cold and rain. You don't have a, any gear. So we need some resources to meet these challenges on the journey. How do we adjust? How do we shift to the changing landscapes as we walk down the path? And this is about cultivating inner qualities, cultivating inner strengths and also drawing on outer strengths. So we recognize that to be on this path requires support. We have the refuges, that support of, of what we can trust, where can we place our heart? We have the support of Sangha, of friends, of teachers, of those who've come before us, our ancestors, the lineage of this tradition. And then there's a whole rich range of inner qualities that support us on this path, that help us have the strength to meet those difficulties. Like when I was sitting there in front of Manindraji, crying my eyes out, scared and lost, I didn't have enough support internally or externally. The resources weren't there to be with the difficulties that were coming up. Now, there are many lists in the Buddhist tradition. It was an oral culture at the time of the Buddha. So everything got memorized and codified in all of these lists, the lists of uh, the threefold training of ethics, mental training, and wisdom, the seven factors of awakening, the five spiritual faculties, the four Brahma Viharas, the 10 Paramis. There's one master list of 37 qualities that are required for awakening. So we cultivate these, this inner space of resource and strength and beauty to be with the difficulties that help sustain us on the path. I wanna talk about three qualities in particular that are easy to overlook, uh, but that really provide a certain sustenance on the path. Both in our formal meditation practice and in our life, just in the day-to-day -day unfolding of, of being a human being. So these three are gratitude, joy, and patience. And I'll touch on each uh, a little bit. And I, I wanna acknowledge I'm, I'm, I'm covering a lot of ground here today in this talk because we have a, a somewhat shorter retreat and any one of these topics really could be a whole 45 minute or hour talk in and of itself. So Aya Kema, one of the great meditation masters of the last century, a German woman who became a Theravada bhikkhuni in Sri Lanka, she was fond of saying that as human beings, we have a heart and a mind, the thinking part and the feeling part, and that we need both on this practice. She said, you can't do this practice with half of a person. You need to be wholehearted. We need to be able to open the heart, to connect with the heart to something. And one way to open the heart and connect is through gratitude. This is from, this is a quote from Joanna Macy. She writes, we have received an inestimable gift. To be alive in this beautiful self-organizing universe to participate in the dance of life with senses to perceive it, lungs that breathe it, and organs that draw nourishment from it is a wonder beyond words. It's an extraordinary privilege to be accorded a human life with self-reflexive consciousness that brings awareness of our actions and the ability to make choices. This lets us choose to take part in the healing of our world. This gratitude for the gift of life is the primary wellspring of all religions, the hallmark of the mystic and the source of all true art. Yet we so easily take for granted this gift. That is why so many spiritual traditions begin with thanksgiving, to remind us that for all of our woes and worries, our existence itself is an unearned benefaction, 
which we could never of ourselves create. It's so mysterious when we step back. How did we get here? What, what is this? <laughs> that we have a body, that we have senses, that we can see and hear and touch and feel each other. It's amazing. Sometimes when we think of gratitude, we, we, get the, we might get the cultural associations of like, be grateful, count your blessings. That's, that's not gratitude. It's not an obligation. It's not a forced state. It's this natural movement in the heart when we're in touch with the reality of how unlikely and uncertain life is. We recognize it doesn't need to be this way. We see the tenuousness of life. Ajahn Buddhadasa, another one of the meditation masters from the 20th century from Thailand, he said, with just this one virtue of gratitude, the world could be at peace. If we are aware of our debt of gratitude to the other beings and life on this planet, we will be unable to act in any way that harms or oppresses them. With the power of this single virtue of gratitude, we can help the world. So we can reflect on all that we've been given, even amidst the struggles, the heaviness of oppression, the gift of life the gift of this path to have encountered something that helps us know ourselves and transform our hearts, the gift of friendship, of food, of air, of water. So noticing what's already here, that's what gratitude's about. Instead of craving, instead of always seeking something else, it's about noticing what's already here. Thich Nhat Hanh talked about it as appreciating your non-toothache. I learned a very heavy lesson in this in my 30s when I got Lyme disease and was sick for a few years. Matthew knew me at that time, and it was a rough period. I was, I was quite sick for a few years. And what a teacher to lose one's health, to recognize that just the most basic ability to wake up in the morning, get out of bed, and not be in pain. Anyone who's had chronic pain in their life knows, or chronic illness. Until, until we lose our health, it's the most overlooked blessing and gift. The most basic thing of just being able to move through a day. And it's, it's awareness of the impermanence and tenuousness of life that feeds this gratitude. When we, when we really take it in, it changes how we relate to things and it opens the heart. It changes how we relate to our loved ones, how we relate to ourselves. And so when we come to meditate, can we touch into that gratitude for something, for anything? To just start from a place of thank you. Thank you for what I've been given. then the heart is ready, the heart is open, it's available, rather than being hungry all of the time. A very closely related quality to gratitude is joy. Closely related because it's about meeting what is. It's about being available instead of seeking something else. Uh, Albert Einstein once said, there are two ways to live. You can live as if nothing is a miracle, or you can live as if everything is a miracle. Uh, Matthew and I had the privilege and good fortune of working together for a few years, um, teaching mindfulness to uh, children and teaching educators how to teach mindfulness to children. 
And uh, one of the teachers I worked with, uh, elementary school, like first grade, second grade, uh, told me about this one activity they used to do with their students um, called part of an emergent curriculum where the teacher is really following the students very in line with the kind of thinking of Montessori schools and Waldorf schools. And uh, she would start the class, they would, uh, when they did this activity, um, the students would all begin a sentence with, I wonder. And each student would offer something that they wonder about, like a question or a curiosity. And the teacher would write them down and they'd gather them all up and then they'd consider together what was the question that they were all the most interested in that particular day. The teacher would call it, I love this, the most beautiful question. I love that, the most beautiful question. So one example was, how does the heart get feelings? And then all of the students would sit in a circle with the teacher outside the circle, just listening. And there were only, um, the only rules were one person speaks at a time and no raising hands. And then the students would just talk and explore the question on their own. This is a way of connecting with joy, with wonder. Do we lose that capacity to wonder? To look at something as simple as a plant or a tree or a bird and be amazed that we have to slow down this is one of the reasons why we've been encouraging you to take your time. This whole world of reverence begins to open up to us when we're available. It's about letting life move us, letting it touch us. And there's this strange thing that happens with these teachings where Sometimes in our effort to protect our heart from the pain of loss, from the, from the vulnerability of not being able to control the world, we take the teachings on impermanence and unsatisfactoriness, and we, we kind of cut ourselves off from things. We see a beautiful flower, and we say, it's impermanent, it's unsatisfactory. Or we see a hummingbird, and we say, it's impermanent, it's not satisfactory, and we miss we miss the aliveness, the beauty. Instead of allowing the universe to touch us, opening the heart to receive what it is to be alive. That's where insight comes from, just being receptive, being curious, being willing to not know and encounter something. These, these teachings on impermanence and, and unsatisfactoriness or the unreliability of things, the um, coreless nature that nothing is independent, these are invitations to, to come to know things closely, to observe in our own experience the way things are by getting intimate with them, not by cutting off from them. And then we can start to really be available for the beauty and the joy in life and let it nourish us. Uh, a good friend um, uh, who also used to work with us uh, in this um, mindfulness and education, uh, this uh, couple has a young, young daughter who's maybe seven now. And a few years ago, our friend sent, uh, sent me a video of her wearing these little plastic boots and it was raining and just jumping in these puddles and splashing and just smiling and so much glee. So we can take joy in one another in, in just relishing the simple things of our lives. Some of you know I have a I have a cat that um, I'm quite fond of. She she and I have a, a very sweet relationship. Her name is Lexi, and uh, like most domesticated animals, she is a creature of habit and has her routines. And uh, every evening when we get ready for bed and brush our teeth, she comes into the bedroom 
And usually uh, first she wants to cuddle and then she wants to play. So she comes into the bedroom and we have this uh, thick blue rug in one area of our bedroom, very kind of plush and textured. And she comes in and she'll look up at me and then she does this thing where she kind of like leans over <laughs> on, on until she falls over on her side and then plops onto her back and puts her legs up in the air and looks at me like, pet my belly, I'm here, come cuddle me. And it just brings me so much joy just to see her so available to receive love. And then within a few moments, she wants to play and run around. There's so much tragedy in life. It's not fair. There's so much loss and hardship. It's, uh, it's more than, than the individual psyche or heart can really hold or metabolize. One can't be with suffering without joy. We can't face or, or open to the whole range of the truth of the way things are without some nourishment for the heart. This is from, uh, from Ayakema, again, the German, German bhikkhuni. The more joy we have, the better we can meditate. Joy is an essential aspect of meditation. Joy belongs to meditation. We always hope that meditation will bring us joy. Well, I hope so too, that it will do that for you. But if you don't bring some joy to the pillow, there's very little chance. How do we do that if we don't feel joyful? Well, first of all, we can be extremely grateful that we have this opportunity of a two and a half thousand year old tradition. It's here, it's alive today, and we can use it. Now that gratitude brings joy, brings a loving heart. The heart is engaged when there's gratitude. I can't recommend enough to start your meditation with a feeling of gratitude. And if it isn't that, that you have this marvelous chance to get near this traditional teaching, then I'm sure you'll find something else to be grateful for. Whatever you can find that opens the heart, the heart has to be open so that it can be wholehearted. So these two, gratitude and joy, provide some of the nourishment, some of the richness to sustain us along the path. The, uh, the third quality I wanted to talk about, and uh, I'm gonna be briefer here than um, than I had had planned is patience. And patience is a different order of uh, qualities. The Buddha referred to it as um, one of the highest qualities. He said it's the, the most supreme. There's another teacher from Burma, uh, Sayada Upandita, who played a large role in this lineage of insight meditation in the West. He says, patience paves the road to freedom. And patience doesn't mean gritting our teeth and bearing it. It's not like that sense of I'm just gonna bear down and make it through that has tension and resistance in it. The mind is clinging, it's, it's longing for something to end. That's not patience. Patience is a relaxation of the heart and mind. It's a willingness to relinquish resistance, to have a quality of softness and acceptance, to actually open and start to touch into a sense of spaciousness with, it, with what is. Patience knows that there's an infinite amount of space to be with what is. And with that infinite space comes an infinite amount of strength. 
The strength of patience is the strength of water that very, very slowly can wear away the hardest rock. It's also the strength that animates nonviolent resistance and nonviolent campaigns that can wear down the power of injustice and oppression. The word in Pali for patience, kanti, is related to the, the root of the word is related to the word for earth, which is calm. So it's the sense of something, something vast and, and immense, like the earth, immovable. One of the images that's used in the commentaries on one sutta is that patience is like the shore around a great ocean because it, it can encompass anything in that, that particular passage is talking about the patience to be with anger, that it, it can hold this like ocean by just being at the edge of it. And to be on this path is not a sprint. It's not a three, four day retreat. It's not a, it's not a, a one year self-improvement project. This is a lifelong journey if we, uh, if we really give ourselves over to it. It's a marathon and that takes patience. It takes a steady mind, a patient mind to allow things to settle, to keep coming back over and over and over and over again. It takes patience to be willing to explore all of these parts of ourselves, many of which we'd really rather not see. <laughs> it's humbling, this practice, so humbling to see how petty we can be, to see how quickly we get frustrated, to see how self-centered we can be, how addicted we are to comfort, to having things our way. It takes a lot of patience to see all of that. Tanisaro Bhikkhu, uh, one uh, monastic here in the United States, he says, uh, you don't get peace on this path, you give peace. Every moment you, you give peace through patience, through just showing up allowing things to be, you, you give it time. This is from Tanisaro Bhikkhu, he says, good things always take time. The trees with the most solid heartwood are the ones that take the longest to grow. So we do the practice, focusing on what we're doing, rather than getting into an internal dialogue about when the results are going to come, what they're going to be like, and how we can speed up the practice. Many times, our efforts to speed things up actually get in the way. Good things always take time. So, you know, we, uh, we, we meet with you in these small groups and uh, a little bit later tonight, we'll have a Q&A with, with some of you. And a lot of what we do as Dharma teachers is to try to hear what's happening for you and just check that you're balanced, that there's enough support and resource there, and then just reflect back what we're hearing and offer encouragement to be with it, to make space, to let it unfold, to have that that courage and trust to be patience, to be patient. And of course, like, of course we want to make progress. We want to achieve something. We want to realize the truth. But that, that sense of getting somewhere, of achieving a goal is, is disconnecting us from what's already here. It's creating some imagined future that we're moving towards. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we never get there. The goal just keeps receding. And this path is, is, is a different orientation. It's about arriving. It's about turning the mind onto itself to discover something that's always been here. that's so close, that's so intimately a part of who and what we are, that we overlook it. 
that in all of our seeking, all of our reaching, all of our chasing, we're only moving away from that which we long for. That which we seek isn't something new that we need to create. It's not going to be found in the future. It's not going to come when we're finally a better person who's more lovable and acceptable. It comes when we stop searching, when we have the courage and the patience and the gratitude, the willingness to meet what's here, to allow it to unfold and reveal itself until there's nothing left, until we come to know in the deepest way who and what we truly are, what we've always been. So I offer these thoughts for your reflection tonight. Let's just sit quietly for a moment or two. So thank you for your kind attention. Uh, So for those who are uh, here at the retreat as a part-time yogi, um, in about a little less than an hour and a half at 6.30 California time, we'll have a Q&A session. And the link for that is in the retreat homepage. It's not this Zoom room, it's a different link. So make sure you go to that retreat homepage to get the link. Uh, And then we'll see everyone else back here who uh, is able to make it due to your time zone at 7.30 for some metta practice. So take your time, enjoy, and see you soon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.